Open your Bibles to chapter 25 of Genesis. We're going to be spending a fair amount of time there today. And that. And uh, one thing I've reflected on, and I want to thank publicly, I want to thank Daryl for taking over my class last week. It was a nice, nice little breather uh, to be away from having to prepare to teach and, and that. But I'm very thankful that God has given me this opportunity to teach as well. It's been very insightful working through this book of Genesis and uh, the start of the Gospel Project. Um, one thing I think you can recognize, and it came to my attention as I've pondered these lessons and thought about, is we see how sin is consistent with humanity. It started in Genesis, it started in chapter 3, and it just continues to go. And there's, there's consequences to that sin. And oftentimes, I think we as humans, we think of that as God's punishing me. It's really not us being punished. It's the consequences of those actions, the consequences of a lie, the consequences of not doing what God clearly stated we should do. And that has, and as you've seen, it's like that pebble you throw in the pond. And that pebble got started with chapter 3 of Genesis. And the ripple effect has now turned into not just a little ripple that has dissipated on the other side of the lake, but now it's a tsunami. And we see that constantly throughout the world. We see that in the story as we go, as we started there, and we've worked through all these characters. I'm not um, saying that uh, God's judgment on the people in Noah, the flood, I think that was definitely punishment, if you will, because of what he did. But by and large, so much of what has gone on in these stories is the consequences of their actions. And God is always there, willing to forgive. But he says, come to me, repent, change. Let's get away from where you've been going. Let's turn a new direction. And so I think that's important to recognize as we look at these stories and that. And it's easy. It's easy for us to look at our own lives when something happens as, oh, God's punishing me. And that you know, he's picking on me or he's punishing me, and that's not the case so often, but it is the consequences of the sin that we commit that leads to these type of uh, reactions, too, and that. So anyway, I thought I'd mention that as something that I thought about and that. And well, um, let me see here. Um, let's look at, uh, I thought this was interesting, too, because we've had a few folks pass away. I don't know if... Um, some of you probably remember a gentleman back here. His name was Frank uh, Phelps. He passed away the beginning of October. Um, kind of unbeknownst to us, the family has not done a funeral or a, they'll do a memorial service later on. But um, I visit him. I'm confident that he knew the Lord, that he loved the Lord, and that I'm thankful that this church family was able to be part of his life for a short period of time. And that I know... Uh, David visited him on occasion. I visited him a couple of times when he was at the nursing home. And he was an interesting man. He was a bachelor all his life, to my knowledge, and uh, lived a hard life, was always worked hard, you know, carried on and that. So anyway, but he's home with the Lord and that. And then also Rosie's husband has passed, Bob, and same thing and that. Thank you for being here, Rosie, and that. But... Uh, there's something interesting about uh, chapter 25, and as I was reading through it again this morning, I'd like us to look at it because I think it's a, an interesting epitaph that God wants us to remember Abraham. And so starting in verse 7, this is the length of Abraham's life, 
175 years. He took his last breath and died at a ripe old age. Old, contented, and he was gathered to his people. His son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near um, Manre in the field of Ephron, son of Zoar the Hittite. The Hittite. And I thought it was interesting that God said this about him. He died at a ripe old age, old and contented in that. And I thought that was interesting that God took the time to put that uh, exclamation point on the end of Abraham's life uh, in this passage in that. And uh, anyway, my thoughts on that. Um, and then the rest of, uh, we're going to start, we'll read uh, chapter 25 starting in verse 21. But prior to that, um, we talked about in the last couple of weeks about the fact that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. And if you read down through there, you start to see that many nations start to take place. The names and the offspring, and these were all large families, and they, obviously they survived. And so it's interesting that that took place. The, uh, you know, a lot of them we would consider uh, Arabians, if you will. Uh, we would consider them Palestinians. We would consider them Iranians, Iraqis, Turks. All of these started to be these nations that we know today would have started to take place at this time through uh, Abraham's offspring and that. So now we'll uh, go ahead and start uh, reading in verse uh, uh, 21. And said, and it starts there and says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord heard his prayers and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the child inside her struggled with each other, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So there's a little bit of story here, a little bit to process. And one thing I would encourage us as men that are married, I think that there's a, a fitting uh, example of the fact that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. He took the time to pray to her. Abraham um, groused about it. He didn't necessarily pray and asked the Lord to give children. But he did meet face-to-face -face with God and at various times and brought about that. But I think that it's interesting that it's recorded here that Isaac took the time to pray for his wife. It was 20 years from the time that they were married till she conceived. And so that's a period of time. And for those who have struggled to become pregnant, I'm sure you can appreciate the feelings that Rebecca would have felt during this time until she did get pregnant. And again, remember that this is a, a culture that has needs men, needs boys to be born so they can pass on their inheritance, if you will. And it had been promised. It had been promised to Abraham, father of many nations, and yet he struggled. And then finally, like we are in the previous part of the verse, you know, there was quite a few children that finally were born to him and nations formed and so on. 
Well, here Isaac is facing the same thing. Been married 20 years, no offspring. And, you know, it doesn't say he was desperate. It just says that he finally, he prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. It doesn't say that he waited. It could have been that entire 20 years he prayed. We don't know. But he certainly petitioned God on the part for his wife in that. And so there was probably a lot of anxieties going on there. And then we read, and, and it's interesting that the Lord talked to her, and she had a relationship with the Lord. It wasn't like she was out there on her own, but she petitioned the Lord, and she said, what's happening to me? It must have been quite a struggle going on inside of her. And for those of you who have been pregnant, and I as a, as a husband that watched my wife give birth five times, um, it's interesting when the baby starts moving and there's that movement, it must have been quite violent in Rebecca <laughs> to have these twins going at it from conception all the way to delivery and that. And so I'm sure she was plenty tired in that. So it's kind of a interesting that it's mentioned that way. And the Lord tells her what's going to go on. There's going to be two nations in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. It's important to recognize that and the fact of where those two nations are today in our nation or in the world and the struggles that are going on there and they haven't quit and they will continue to go on and God talks about it all these many many years ago and so here's the start of it if you will it's it's always going to be it's going to be that way um, Jimmy Carter tried to get people to come to the talk table and get some sort of peace going on there it's not going to happen in that they can come together they can kind of agree to disagree would probably be the best thing because here clearly God says it's not going to happen there is always going to be this type of conflict going on in this part of the world and that I'm not a doomsdayer I'm just simply understanding what is written down here so anyway so it's interesting that God addressed it at that time yes Guyan brought out the fact that it's usually the Arabs, or it has been the Arabs, that have disagreed with coming to the peace talks. They don't want Israel in that place. And, you know, you can read through history, and it's always easy to second-guess history and say, well, they should have done this or they should have done that. Well, they didn't do that, and that's what's happened. But Israel is there, as God promised they would have the land at one time, 1946. 1948 is when they were given that piece of property and it's been it was a bone of contention before then it's not that it was peaceful before that you had the Ottoman Empire and they ruled by brute force and they subjugated everybody that was under them and they were Islamic and so there's always been conflict going on so don't think that it's just because the nation of Israel is there here's where God says no it's always going to be that way so recognize that um, that brings up a point to me. If you read about Ishmael back in chapter 13 or 14, it says that he is going to be uh, a wild donkey of a man, not living away from everyone. And he's going to, his hand is going to be against his own brothers. And that's always the way it's been. The, if you look at the culture, if you do any studying in history, you will see that it's that always been an area of conflict, that whole fertile crescent, you know, from Egypt north to Turkey to, to the east and to the, the Mediterranean Sea. It's always been in conflict, and God has said that that's the way it's going to be. And so the best that we can do is pray for them, spread the gospel, pray for those who are missionaries in those areas, 
because that's the only way that it's going to change. It's not going to change because our politicians, the UN, uh, Russia, the United States, whoever else wants to get involved in the peace process is going to sit down and bring all these people together and say, okay, let's talk about it. And we've seen that. All of our lives, since I was a young man, have been involved in listening to this, and it's not going to, it's, God says here, it's not going to take place. So it's important to recognize that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for it, that we shouldn't do all that we can because we're encouraged to do that in the scriptures. We're in, our governments are encouraged to do that, to, to try and bring about peaceful solutions. But it's better to try to manage it than to think that we can solve it in the end. And that. But recognize what God says, and God's word is true. And so we have to see that. Um, any other comments on that little bit of political history? <laughs> okay. And that. Take your hand out. And uh, if you would, let's uh, look at this thing, Esau. I find it interesting that there's, uh, there's two different definitions for the name uh, Esau and the name Jacob. One, and let's go through Esau first, is my uh, Bible brought this out, and it said that he's a man of rural regions or a hunter. He was, in the, he was a woodsman. He was an outdoorsman. Many of us can identify with that. Many of us enjoy time in the woods. We hunt, we fish. We'd rather be there than working and that. And if you say, no, that's not the case, then I'll say you're a liar. <laughs> and that because all of us do. We enjoy that freedom to be out there in God's creation chasing animals and that. And so that's what Esau was. His other name, Edom. And that means red. And that was a nickname because of how he was born and that. And uh, so anyway, that's him important to recognize and then it says Esau was sensually minded he lived for the moment pragmatic pragmatic is good if it's to deal with problems on a construction site it's not so good if you deal with your spiritual life as a pragmatist because all you're doing is you're doing what works best at that moment you're not thinking long term and that's how Esau was he didn't care what happened the next day he'd deal with it when he got there and so you see that in his life he wanted to satisfy his basic needs, and he was willing to give up the most precious and honored of items that culture had, the blessing given by father to his son. We don't, um, and let's digress a little bit and talk about that. And Sam, you can interject if you can, as I go through this. We don't look at the blessing of the father to the oldest and then the next son's down. If you look at the life of uh, Jacob when he blessed his sons, each of them he gave specific blessings to or statements too. We don't look at that in this day and age and think that that's important because we just don't do it. There is an inheritance. If you have finances and money, you'll fill out a will and in there you'll say that, you know, uh, my son gets this, my daughter gets this, so on and so forth if you have assets. In my case, there's gonna be a big fight when I pass on for my hunting knife that I've had. And uh, I told them, no, it goes with me. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but anyway, so we don't look at it as they did back then. To them, it was a big thing. And you can read uh, various characters, and they talk about that blessing. When we're talking about the nation of Israel um, and, and the formation of it with Abraham, there was, it was a God-given blessing that they passed on to their, their sons. And that and it was specific. It was for specific things. And so you need to recognize that the context is a little bit different for them than it is for us and how important it was. And for Esau to just thumb his nose at it for a bowl of soup, and I'll get to that point because that's a little bit ironic too, 
uh, is important for us to realize how, how um, just he could care less about the, uh, the, the importance of it and that. Is there anything else, Sam, or does that kind of cover it? Okay. And that, so it's important for us to recognize that context and that, and that. So anyway, Esau didn't even remember that he had traded his blessing for a bowl of lentil stew. Ironically, and this is a point I was bringing out, a, veg a vegetarian stew at that. This is a meat eater. He went out hunting, spent all day out hunting, and didn't get anything. And he comes back, and he's willing to trade his life, his future life, for a bowl of soup. It's not even meat soup. It's not even goat soup. It's lentil soup and that. And I find... Uh, the one um, thing that I read in here uh, it says, let's not rush too quickly over the interesting parentheses at the end of verse 30. The name Edom means red. Apparently it became a nickname for Esau related not to his redness at birth, but to his fatal choice of the red stew. How interesting that the skillful hunter came back from the woods at this time with no game as Chef Jacob literally boiled vegetable soup. The hunter became the hunted, trapped by the bait of his brother's menu. The result was catastrophic. And I thought that was kind of interesting and kind of humorous at the same time, that that's what he became known as. And there is a, a section of Palestine that is called Edom, and that, and that would be the area that he probably settled in, and that as well. So uh, anyway, let's look at the name Jacob. And it means... Uh, the other name is dweller in tents, is what that name can mean. Uh, normally we think of as, as the heel catcher or the supplanter, which means one who takes the place of another, which Jacob is called. He's called the deceiver. Uh, the name Jacob is kind of associated with the deceiver. But actually it meant a dweller in tents is the, is the kind of the literal, uh, one of the literal renderings of that name. Jacob wanted his family's spiritual birthright for himself, perhaps having heard the Lord's prophecy given to Rebekah about the older serving the younger. And while his goal may have seemed nobler than his brother's, the method, which was cheating, was anything but noble. And he didn't trust God. Here at a, an opportune time, he chose to deceive and manipulate his brother into giving up something. And he didn't have to. God had already promised it to him. He'd already told his, his mother... Uh, Rebecca, that he was going to be the one that the younger or the older served in that. So it's important that we recognize some of this that went on uh, at this time in that. And that gets us to the second point, which we haven't read through that. And the first point was God's promises are kept in unusual ways. And that was verses 21 through 26. And now let's go ahead and read uh, 25 through 29. We discussed the names of Jacob and Esau and what they meant. There's a few other little uh, points we can bring out here. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking his stew, Esau came from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. This is why he is also named Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright. Then Jacob gave him bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. It's important to recognize that, that instant gratification of anything 
is not the right way to go. And here's a case of a man, like we discussed, I already mentioned earlier, that just gave it all up for a simple bowl of stew, and he carried on that, that attitude of pragmatism. You know, whatever works at the moment is what I'll do, and, that, and that's exactly what he had, what he did with this birthright. There's something else that's kind of underlying here, and that is the fact, and as parents, if you have children, you can do this, and that's play favorites. And I think it's important to recognize that they were being played against each other, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the apple of his dad's eye. He was the hunter, the outdoorsman. Isaac was probably very much that way. As a shepherd, you know, he was outdoors all the time. Whereas Rebecca liked her younger son. You know, the fact that he stayed, he was dwelling in a tent, that he didn't, he didn't mind cooking and sewing and all those domestic chores that a lot of young men don't. And so they were, they were paired against each other from early age. And, that, and this wasn't rectified at any point. And so I think as parents we need to recognize that, that that's easy for us to do, that there's a particular son or a particular daughter that we care for more that appeals to us. And I would say that it's important that if you recognize this and what you've been doing, apologize and change it up because you can read the rest of the story easily here and you'll find out that it led nowhere that all it did is create more and more divisiveness. And you can read through history of those things that have played out that way. And so I think it's important to recognize that, that that's a, a crucial area. We talked about how Esau was an example of how not to live in the world, especially, you know, what he did. Repent, if you will. Turn to Hebrews. Let's uh, go there. There's an interesting commentary from God on Esau later on. Hebrews chapter 12, if you will, uh, verses 16 through 17. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read verses 16 and 17. This is kind of a sad commentary in uh, contrast to what God had to say about Abraham in that. And it reads here, starting in verse 16, And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. He never did apologize for that. Yes. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and by it defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any, and then it goes on. But you can see how God used Esau as an example. And it stands in stark contrast to what we read about Abraham in that. And so it's important that we see that he is an example of what not to be, what choices not to make in our lives, how not to uh, petition God, if you will, and just live a life by our own definition. And then Jacob uh, says here, uh, for like his grandfather Abraham before him, Jacob took matters into his own hands instead of trusting God to fulfill his promises, and the result would be just as costly. And that's the point I make is that rather than trust God, just give him the stew, you know, he had to manipulate the situation. And as we go through the life of Jacob, you'll see that constantly. And the, and the turmoil that comes into the life of Jacob again, is a result and a consequence of his sin. It's not God punishing him. It's a result of those actions that he chose to do. 
And so, it's, again, it's important to recognize in our own lives that when we sin, there's consequences to that. When we violate God's purpose, when we miss his mark that he's clearly established in Scripture, that's when things tend to fall apart. But God is there to rescue. He was there to rescue uh, Jacob. He didn't, didn't drop his promise to Jacob. He didn't drop his promise to Isaac, and he didn't drop his cro- promise to Abraham, but he maintained that promise consistently throughout their lives and blessed them immensely. Time and time again, we see God's promises not working around the obstacles and violations of social norms, but through them. And that is, you see that, that he didn't violate what was going on, but he worked through them to, create, to, to satisfy his promise that he had given them. And it's important to recognize that God does work through things. He does work through the sins that we fall into to create for his good. And I think, again, recognize that, maintain that in your own life, that God will work through it. God does cause all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and that's in the book of Romans. And that, chapter 8, I believe. Let's go back to Genesis there. So the next uh, statement we have, the third point, and have you noticed that Gospel Project breaks everything down into three points? So we're at point three. Uh, God's promises are based on his unchanging faithfulness. And we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 26, 1 through 6. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And if you remember back, there was a reason Abraham went from the land that he was promised and traveled down into Egypt. And that, and that was because of that famine. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of uh, Philistines at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land and I tell you about, uh, that I tell you about. Stay in the land as a foreigner, and I will be with you and bless you. For I, am, I will give you all these lands to you and your offsprings, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring." Because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, my instructions, so Isaac settled in Gerar. And here again we see obedience. We see that Isaac didn't go down. There was every evidence that he should have. They had the Nile River in Egypt. They had lots of irrigation. They had lots of opportunity to grow things. There wasn't a famine in Egypt at that point. And uh, so it made sense in Isaac's mind for him to travel down there. But he chose not to. He chose to obey God. And as you read the rest of the story about Isaac, you find out that he did stay there. He did flourish. He did do well in that. So, again, God kept his promise. He obeyed what God had told him to. God reiterated his promise again. This is probably, I haven't been keeping count, the fourth or fifth time God has maintained this promise that he's told, started with Abraham, kept it up with Isaac, and here again we see it. I think it's been reiterated to Isaac two times already in that. So God is emphasizing this promise that he has, this land that he's given them, that it's not going to go away, that it's theirs in that. The essential doctrine that we can pick up through this story that kind of relates to that earlier thing I read, that God's going to work his plan through the events that are going on, regardless of what we may think, is that God is unchanging. God's being in attributes along with the ethical 
commitments he has given cannot change. This means, among other things, that God is committed to being God and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's unchanging nature is good news for Christians, for it guarantees that God does not change his mind or go back on his promises. Christians can find assurance and peace of mind knowing that God, that the God who brought them out of darkness into his marvelous light is the God who will carry them through eternity. There was a promise of a Savior that started out in the book of Abraham, or in the book of, uh, not Abraham, the book of Genesis chapter 3. And that promise took place a few thousand years later. But God has consistently maintained that promise that he would provide a deliverer. And that's what this is saying, that God is unchanging. That once he starts, once his plan is given, it's not going to change, but it's going to be maintained. And it's important to recognize that. I have some definitions down there for you to take home. One is immutability, and that's the idea that God does not change, that all of his attributes he holds. I've defined that word before for us in, in other classes that we've had. And it's one to, to maintain and grasp and, and wrap your arms around is this, God, this idea that God is immutable. God's faithfulness is bound up in that word immutable. It implies long, continued, and steadfast fidelity to, who, to whatever one is bound to by a pledge, duty, or obligation. And so it's important for us to recognize that unchangingness of God in what he is and what he does in our lives and throughout eternity. We've got a little bit of time yet, and one of the things I don't... Does anybody follow Wall Street very much here? If you do, raise your hand. I'm not one that follows it. I have a guy I work with who follows it readily, and uh, it's interesting if you watch Wall Street and you see how the Dow Jones goes up and down. Somebody can sneeze in the Middle East and say the word war, and it will affect Wall Street dramatically you'll see the price of oil and gas go up. And that stands in contrast to how our God is. Even though we rely on Wall Street for so much of our investments and all that, it is very volatile. Uh, if you read much about it, if you listen to it, you have day traders, you have those who are interested in the long term, you'll hear, and they will be more uh, slow to invest or to sell. The day traders are emotional. They're up and down. They'll buy and sell the same stock maybe several times in the same day, depending on how much money they think they can gain or lose. If you watch the business section and news at night, you can get all excited as you listen to these guys and they're, they're, oh, do this, do that, sell this, sell that, you know, buy this, buy that. And it's interesting, but God stands in contrast to that. And that controls Wall Street, whether we, liked it, whether we want to admit it here or not. We know that God controls all things. But so much of our economy, so much of how we live our lives is controlled by the volatility of that market there. And it's good to look at that and then turn and look at who God is and realize that he does not change. What he has said, he's going to maintain. And so it's, I thought that that was, as I was studying this, I thought, oh, that's an interesting point. And that. So, is there any other comments or thoughts anybody has? Yeah. Guyan brings out the point that later on in Jacob's life, as he nears the end of his life, that God changes his name to Israel. He's not necessarily known as Israel, but he did change his name in that. And that's the nation that we have now is Israel in that. He didn't change Esau's name. Uh, Guyan mentioned it stayed that. His nickname was Edom. That wasn't his given name, but it was Hey Red. 
in that. So uh, anyway, and you can play that any way you want, but uh, it's important to recognize that as well. That What's that? Uh, in Genesis 6-6, which is which story? Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. There, the, the writer is referencing how, because we see God in human terms, because we're a created being, we're going to reference God in terms of us and how we relate to something. And so while God was grieved and sorrowful, it isn't that he was uh, wishing that he never created man, because if he wished he'd never created man, he never would have created him because he's, he's not changing. And that, so I see that as, um, and I forget the word. Uh, it's an attribute that we uh, uh, Afro. Thank you, anthropomorphic, where we describe God in terms of what that we can relate, and that's relating to God. In that story, it's the sorrow that God had because He looked down, just like um, you don't have children yet. You had a privilege to uh, babysit a few for a few days. And one of them, I'm sure, disobeyed during that period of time. And that none of them did. Yeah, right. You're lying. <laughs> but anyway, as a parent, or as somebody as a surrogate parent, you ask your child to do something. And this is very simple. And then when they don't do it, you're saddened because they didn't obey. And now you've got to do something to correct that. And that's what God had to do. He was sorry that he... He saw man, he saw the sin, he saw the corruption, he saw the evil, and he was sorry for what he had to do. But he still had to do it because he is just, because he is righteous, because of all those other attributes of God are held in tension and in equal parts. And so that's when we see that, is that it's uh, that anthropomorphism, as you will, it's how we relate to God. I wouldn't disagree with that statement. I, I think that a lot of times we don't. And that's why it's good to um, ponder. It's good to read um, different devotionals. To, and a devotional I take as not so much a commentary, which is uh, given that man's thoughts, but a devotional usually is written in context to the emotional side of what the passage is going to carry. Because sometimes we need to look at God through emotional lenses, not just... Um, hard and fast critical lenses, you know, and see, we tend to, th uh, analytical is the word I'm looking for. We can tend to look at God as an analytical God, he's this, he's this, he's this, but he has emotion, and that's clearly shown in his attributes. And so I think it's important, a lot of times we, we are um, not understanding God fully, and why it's important that we ponder him, that we look at his scriptures. One of the verses I didn't look up, uh, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, is that God's ways are not our, our ways. As the heavens are high above the earth, so is God's ways above our ways. And we tend to forget that. We tend to, because that's the only way we can relate to God. I cannot relate to um, a world-class mountain climber, even though I've climbed a 14er. I have no idea what that's like to, to be 29,000 feet in the air and struggling for oxygen and yet driven to the point that I've got to reach that summit. I have no idea what that feels like. In the same way that I have no idea what it's like to be God. And that I can understand him in human terms, but that's it. 
I cannot, for you women, I can't understand childbirth. I'm sorry. I know what it is. I know the pain. I know I don't like it. I never liked it a bit. I'm not one of those guys that photographed my wife's childbirth and was all excited. I, I grieved for her. I felt for her because I couldn't, because I couldn't take that pain from her and that. So I think that there's those ways that we can relate to God, but only to a point and understand God. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, what was that? Yes, and that's so true. She wrote there in Ezekiel where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But I wish that the, you know, my paraphrase, I wish that the wicked would turn back and repent and come to me. And God, and she mentioned that, uh, Guyan mentioned that God could have, Genesis chapter 1, he could have ended it right there and started with a new creation. But he chose not to. He chose to carry this out and work through it till he returns in that. So, yes. Yeah. She makes the point, which is in scripture, that men repent, all men to repent to come to repentance everywhere. That's important. Yes, and that. Thank you, and Daryl. And I hope you heard what he had to say because that's, I'm not going to paraphrase it. <laughs> and that, but it's true, what he had to say. And, uh, and recognizing that, and that's the confidence we have is God's faithfulness, his immutability, and that's what we need to rest on at the end of the day is understanding that and having peace and confidence in that. Um, anything else? Any comments or in that? Um, we'll be on to a little bit more in the life of Isaac next week. Okay, if there's nothing else, I'll close in a word of prayer.